Hey, welcome Dr. Josh, your sports medicine radio show. My name is Dr. Dan, comes to you from inside D1 Abilene, Dr. Josh Radio Studios. Great to have you with us today. Hey, if you're just catching our show for the very first time, we are a sports medicine show. We uh, basically talk about what's going on in the sports entertainment world, but we do it from a sports medicine niche. And what I mean by that is I'm a doctor uh, at Texas Sports Spine, where I do sports medicine is my day job. And then on air here, we talk about different sports medicine injuries in the news that you might have heard of. Like this week, uh, you might have heard of the big Bryce Harper injury. We'll be talking about that. We talk about a lot of other uh, injuries in the news and medical aspects of things that are going on in the sports world. So we're great. To, we're so pleased to have you as part of our show that uh, we would love to have you part of our show in a multiple different ways. You can follow us on social media. You can go to docsandjocks.com, D-O-X-N-J-O-X.com. And there you can find out how to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you name it. We'd love to have you be part of our show that way. You can also email us and uh, contact us there at docsandjocks.com and uh, send us your question as well. We'd love to have you be part of our show that way and uh, be part of our show and be interactive. And uh, I am joined each week by my co-host, Ferris Potter. Ferris is the voice of Grand Canyon University, longtime sports broadcaster. Ferris, thanks for being on the show today, man. Exciting. A lot of stuff going on. Yeah, a lot of stuff. Home stretch in baseball and some big, big injuries happening. Yeah, absolutely. And we were talking about injuries in baseball right now. Bryce Harper is probably the number one uh, biggest injury. We uh, are going to have on some great guests today as well, Ferris, as always. We're going to have on, coming out of the first break, we're going to have on Jeff Tucker. And if you haven't seen it, there's a Discovery Channel show called Darkness. And uh, if you wonder, think that's going to be a horror movie or something. But actually, Jeff and uh, two other competitors go into a cave in Missouri. They're not allowed to have any light at all, they have to manage their way, get their way through an entire cave within a six-day period of time, or they will uh, lose. So they have no water, no food, and they got to figure out how to get out of a cave from one end to the next, and then they will uh, figure out how to do that and and uh, try and figure out uh, how not to uh, injure each other and uh, get through as a team. And so it's a really cool show. So we're talking to Jeff Tucker. We're also going to be talking to uh, Eddie Lackey, former Big Twelve linebacker, as well as we'll be talking to Raymond Beal, who is a seven time black belt multiple different uh, martial arts talking about the upcoming fight between conor mcgregor and floyd mayweather won't want to miss that and more here on docs and jocks man we really appreciate you being part of the sports medicine show docs and jocks we'll be right back you're listening to guy talk live from the sport clips haircuts locker room caller you're on the air my girlfriend beat me playing one-on-one Ooh, sounds like you need to hit up a sport clips for an awesome haircut experience and some quality man time my girlfriend always takes me to her salon. Nonsense. Be your own man and get a great haircut in a guy-friendly place from stylists who know what guys need. You may be right. Sure I'm right. Now grab your Y chromosome, get down to Sport Clips, and ask for the MVP. Sport Clips. It's good to be a guy. No one burns calories like Firehouse Subs. Introducing our hearty and flavorful under 500 calorie menu. Steaming hot sriracha beef, hook and ladder light, turkey cranberry, and more. Six new subs, four new salads, overflowing with flavor under 500 calories. And starting at only 549. Under 500 calories never tasted so hearty and flavorful. Firehouse Subs. One bite, one taste, you're hooked. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. My name is Dr. Dan, coming from inside Docs and Jocks radio studio. Hey, great to have you with us today. Just got your show for the first time. Let's find out more about it. You can do that by going to docsandjocks.com, D-O-X-N-J-O-X 
Com. Hey, great to have you with us. My co-host each week is Ferris Potter, the voice of Grand Canyon University. Hey, Ferris, let's just jump right into the uh, biggest news in the sports medicine world, probably bar none right now, is the Bryce Harper injury. Uh, if you don't know who Bryce Harper is, you're obviously not a baseball fan, but he is one of the biggest studs right now in MLB. He is probably the uh, best hitter, or at least in the top three discussion of uh, best hitters in Major League Baseball, the Washington Nationals outfielder. Uh, Ferris, were you able to see the horrific knee injury he had uh, the other night where he uh, plays the Giants? They have a three-hour rain delay, and he comes back and he has a horrific knee injury yeah i saw the replay of it um tragic uh, for them tragic for me too because he's on my fantasy league team but <laughs> yeah. uh, boy it, it looked like it looked like when he did it i thought oh he he, he ripped ligaments he ripped stuff he's going to be done for the year but maybe that's not the case but man you could tell he was in some significant pain man. yeah it was also the interesting part of it was it was a three-hour rain delay which means basically bryce harper was sitting around for three hours they're trying to get a game in against a team, the uh, Giants. The Giants right now, Fair, sit at 49-74. and 74. They are not making the playoffs. There's no way. The Nationals right now are 72-47. and 47. They would have to have a collapse of monumentous uh, proportions to be able not to make the playoffs. So really a meaningless game. They're playing the third game, a getaway game. So after this game, they're leaving. They're heading out of town. They're not flying out to the West Coast anymore. So if the Nationals don't play this game, they're going to have to figure out a way to get to California to play a makeup game, or the Giants have to figure out a way to get to the East Coast to play a makeup game. Major League Baseball always wants everybody to have 162 games, and so uh, even though it's a meaningless game, it's going to make it very difficult on the schedulers to figure out how to make a makeup game when neither team is going East Coast to West Coast basically the rest of the year. So they wait three hours. The field is wet. The base is wet. Bryce Harper, probably the star player that everybody comes to see for the Washington Nationals, slips on top of the bag. And when he slips on top of the back, he hyperextends his knee. And if you saw the injury, it looked like he was going to be down and probably maybe tore his ACL. You can tear your ACL, the big crisscross yeah. ligament in your knee, Ferris, by hyperextending it. It's not nearly as common as if your knee buckles in. If your knee buckles in, we call that genuvalgus. You're oftentimes your ankle kind of rolls out, which is called uh, eversion of your ankle. And it's usually with a flex knee. Those are the most common non-contact anterior crucial ligament ruptures you have. You'll see somebody cutting. You saw the other day uh, the quarterback from Miami do that. And so you can, though, slip, hyperextend your knee, and you do so so far that it actually ruptures the anterior crucial ligament. I thought because of the way he went down, he was down in a heap, he was unable to move, that that was probably what happened. But he, luckily for him, he has a bone contusion, a bone contusion, Ferris, is where basically it went so far, your knee hyperextended past the point of normal, that a normal range of motion, that he hits the bottom of his knee, the, the tibia, goes up and banks off of the femur, which is the big, you know, round part of your knee. And when they do so, you give yourself a contusion to the bone. And so it can oftentimes just be really, really painful. It's hard to walk on. It takes about six to eight weeks. But overall... It's a pretty good knee injury, pretty good prognosis as compared to an ACL rupture, as you and I have talked about with numerous other uh, athletes have had ACL ruptures. It's a year following ACL reconstruction. You know, you got to go through the rehab. It's about a year before you feel fully back to playing uh, cutting sports again, so on average. So anyway, but I bet the uh, Washington Nationals, after that MRI was taken and after the doctors examining, there was a huge collective side relief. Probably you as a fantasy league baseball player, even though you won't get him probably until the end of the season, at least you know he's coming back. Yeah, the the problem with fantasy is that our weeks, our season ends before other people. But yeah. you're right, though, that for the Nationals as a baseball team, I mean, 
they're expecting they should be able to get him back by the time uh, you know the season comes in. Quite frankly, they just need him for that. You're right. They're, what, 13 and a half games up, 14 games up. There's no way they're going to lose that lead, and they're probably not going to lose that as the uh, second seed because the other two best teams, uh, in other than the Dodgers, are both going to be wild card teams, and the Cubs and Cardinals aren't going to catch him oh, for an overall. So they're in good shape if he comes back. I mean, you look at the Nationals, Dr. Dan, and this is important for this show. Trey Turner's missed multiple yes. uh, games, uh, like 60 days. You got Harper now. I mean, they've got just a ton of guys on the DL. Yeah. Steven Strasburg is the one. He's looking pretty good. He's doing his rehab start right now, Steven Strasburg is. And so, you know, he had a nerve impingement in his elbow, the most common nerve impingement. You and I talked about this on a previous Docs and, Docs and Jocks episode. Is your uh, el- the, the nerve in your elbow called your ulnar nerve? It's a nerve that runs through your funny bone area. You know, if you ever hit your funny bone ferris, you know, you bank it off of your car seat, you know, uh, you know, seat belt holder, or whatever, or you hit the corner of your desk with it. It's the one that gives you that zinger down in your hand, and that's the most common one to get injured in your elbow. There are some other ones around your elbow that can sometimes give you problems. Uh, sometimes pitchers, because they get such big forearms, they will actually impinge a nerve as it runs through a muscle called your pronator teres, and you can pinch another nerve called your median nerve in your elbow. So there are some other nerves you can injure there, but by far and away the most common is your ulnar nerve. You've probably heard of cubital tunnel syndrome. You ever heard of that one? It's composed to, uh, as a, uh, compared to uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. You ever heard of cubital tunnel syndrome? No, huh? No, it's probably the second most common nerve entrapment in the elbow, and uh, that is the one that if you ever sleep with your elbow bent all night long and you wake up and your hand is asleep, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, like if you're laying on your side and you're sleeping on your elbow bent and your hand's underneath you, you wake up and you feel like your total hand is asleep, that's usually your carpal tunnel nerve, or I'm sorry, your cubital tunnel nerve called your ulnar nerve as you've compressed it there at your elbow. So think about pitchers who are constantly, you know, hyperextending and flexing and hyperextending their elbow. Some pitchers, just the way your anatomy lies, it will compress or injure the nerve in the elbow itself. But Steven Strasburg came out. He did his first rehab start. He pitched five innings and had five strikeouts. So if they can get Steven Strasburg back, if they can get a healthy Bryce Harper back, if they can keep Trey Turner healthy, I think you're right. 72-47 and 47 is an incredibly good record right now. I think they have a really good chance of going deep in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it's going to be interesting in the playoffs, right? Because yeah, the Dodgers, Dodgers are just are having a season for the ages. Yeah. I mean, they, they, might win, they might win more games than any team ever. I mean, granted, the teams that have won 116 only played 152. But they're going to win 114, at least 110 games, maybe 114, 15. But when you get in the playoffs, if you're the Nationals, if everybody's healthy and you have Scherzer and Strasburg going one two, you like your chances against anybody. Yeah, Scherzer and Strasburg going one two. I know the uh, you, obviously Kershaw, and probably who's their number two right now? I mean, you got you Darvish out there now, who's probably amazing. You got uh, Darvish or Hill. Alex Wood right now, probably yeah. uh, Rich Hill. Yeah, probably, I mean they, they really don't have as good a number two because Darvish hasn't pitched that well, but they're all very good. They're oh, deep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who knows what will happen in the playoffs as well. So it's going to be interesting to right. see how they do uh, in the playoffs. So, so we'll, uh, baseball is always one of those games. You ha- And we always say this on air. We say you have to be, have incredibly great talent. You have to uh, be hot at the right time, and you have to avoid the injury bug. And right now it looks like the Washington Nationals, even though they've had a great season so far, they haven't avoided the injury bug, and that's the one that can always jump up and get you if you uh, lose Strasburg for the season. You always are nervous when there is an elbow injury in a pitcher for any reason. You're always nervous because it always ends up seemingly to be a, a Tommy John. And remember, Strasburg's already had Tommy John surgery, I believe, uh, after his rookie year he had it. So 
You know, he's already had that injury before, so we know he's a guy that's prone to it. Let's just go over this for uh, maybe some young listeners or, or parents drive around listen to Docs and Jocks, their sports medicine radio show, and they want to know what sets you up for a Tommy John-type injury. Remember, you and I talked about there's a study by Dr. James Andrews, uh, one of the most famous sports medicine doctors in the world, that yep. looked at what makes a pitcher prone. Doesn't mean you're going to have it if you have these things, but makes them prone to injure the ligament on the inside of their elbow called their ulnar collateral ligament that happens to have a name for the surgery called Tommy John surgery, who was one of the very was the very first pitcher to ever have it done with Frank Job, one of the most famous doctors uh, in the world who just recently passed away. So if you land with your front foot in while you're pitching, if you land and your backhand is still the ball is still pointed down towards the ground, that lags your hand behind your lower half and makes you prone to having stress on your ulnar collateral ligament. If you get your elbow above your shoulder in your throwing motion, in other words, we call it the reverse W position, With when you're in your cocking phase, if your elbow goes above the level of your shoulder, you're now going to have to whip your arm through to catch it up with it and with your uh, motion. And so it's going to put a tremendous amount of valgus stress, which is the stress where your hand is behind your elbow when you're coming through. And you're going to have a lot of stress on your elbow. So reverse W position, landing your front foot, the ball still down, pointed downward in your hand. Or if you step across your body, if when you're a pitcher and your front foot lands and you're closed with your front shoulder, in other words, stepping across your body, so now you're throwing and having to open your shoulder and coming across your body, it puts a tremendous amount of stress on your elbow. Those are the three things. If you're looking at a young pitcher, and all you got to do, Ferris, is you would take a short video of your son throwing from the side, so you're looking at them, and you look, does his elbow get above his shoulder? And is his hand in the backhand, when your foot foot lands, is it pointed downward? And then take a short video from the front and see if his front foot lands in line with his back foot, slightly open, as opposed to landing where his front uh, front foot crosses in front of his back foot and lands with his front shoulder closed. It's a, it's a quick, I can't, be honest with you, I try and I do this for a living. I try and watch young pitchers throw and try and do it in live motion. I, I do too. And I can't do it. I can't see it. Yeah, I can't see it. Because I, I can sometimes tell on the elbow above their shoulder because they, they always look like kids that kind of look like they're kind of whipping it through, like they have a kind of a herky-jerky motion. I can sometimes pick that up. But the other right. ones, I can't do it. It happens so fast. So just video your son and then ask him, does, the, then look at those things. Do those three things happen? If they do. Get him with a really good pitching coach that is a very trustworthy pitching coach with a good track record and see if you can correct those functional motion flaws that are going to make him prone to having a Tommy John surgery because we know there's been a rash of them. So we've got to do something to start right. changing this around or baseball is going to be a world of hurt. You don't want to lose the Steven Strasburgs, the Adam Wainwrights, the guys who had this type of surgery. You don't want to lose those guys. So anyway, those are the kind of things you can learn here on Docs and Jocks that will hopefully help you uh, keep your son healthy while he's playing baseball. Hey, I want to tell you about our next guest coming up on the other side of Docs and Jocks. We're going to have on Jeff Tucker. Jeff is a fitness instructor, but he also just recently uh, finished the Discovery Channel Darkness Show where he had to figure out how to get through a cave in six days with a couple of his friends in complete and utter darkness. Won't want to miss that on the other side of the Docs and Jocks. Uh, we're going to talk to Jeff Tucker. We'll see you on the other side. Brought to you in part by Joe Walker.
Insurance, Visual Edge, and Texas Sport Inspired. Touchdown. Now back to more Docs and Jocks with Dr. Dan and Ferris. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. Great to have you with us today. This is Dr. Dan, longtime sports medicine physician with Texas Sports Spine, along with my co-host, Ferris Potter, the voice of Grand Canyon University, longtime sports broadcaster. Man, Ferris, we are always honored to have on some great guests. I've been excited about this interview for a long time. A good friend of mine, Jeff Tucker. Jeff is a uh, just recently did a show on Discovery Channel where he was in a show called Darkness, and uh, it wasn't a horror flick. It was actually a show that was done in the darkness where he and two other competitors enter at different points in a cave. They have to figure out how to get from point A to point B all the way while navigating a true cave in Missouri and uh, figuring out how to get to the other side. No food, no water, no lights. they got a few little supplies with them, but really nothing. Just got to figure it out on their own. Jeff has been a longtime fitness instructor, former TCU gymnast. Uh, Jeff, thanks for being on Docs and Jocks. Man, my pleasure. It's great to be here. Yeah, so first of all, tell us where the uh, idea came. How did you find out about the show? Did they uh, seek you out, uh, or did you just find out about the show and then uh, and try and try and compete you know, the, how they work. the short version was somebody just kind of dared me on Facebook to check it out. And, <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, so I did. And literally, I didn't even fill out an application. It was months later that they contacted me and said, why didn't you fill out an app? Your background's kind of unorthodox. Yeah. Firemen, policemen, all that crap. Yeah. And so, essentially, from there, you know, we did an application. Five minutes later, I'm on the uh, program with the producers doing a Skype interview, and they said, we want you. Yeah, so... Let's let's talk a little about your background because you really are. If there's going to be somebody that's going to be able to do this, yeah. it's probably someone with your background. You've been a, a fitness instructor, a world-renowned fitness instructor, going around speaking about fitness and how to stay healthy, how to stay, you know, a strength training, cardio training, and doing it in the proper fashion. You're kind of the world's expert in that. So that's that's a big part of your background. Sure. Then you've had background in uh, firefighting, fi- firefighting yeah. which is how to pararescue, all that kind of stuff where you take people in tough situations and figure out how to keep them alive, what a, what a perfect situation that was. Right. And then uh, your athletic background, being a gymnast, being uh, obviously, you know, having gone through tough things with being gymnastic, can't imagine flipping up in the air and figuring out how to catch yourself on bars and doing all the crazy stuff gymnasts do. So that background, it seems like a perfect background for someone who has to start off in the great unknown, figure out how to survive for six days in complete darkness and get from point A to point B, but talk about your background. Do you feel like it prepared you? Uh, yeah, I think on the mental fortitude side, definitely. Yeah. Uh, you know, because it, it, there were things that I started researching uh, when I looked at, you know, what are the effects of darkness that long period of time. Um, and so as you go into that, you start to realize this may not be something you want to do. I mean, 48 hours <laughs> yeah. in total darkness lab, yeah. the brain is saying, okay, we're going to start throwing some hallucinations at you. Yeah. Uh, not to mention not having the, you know, the food or the water. Yeah. That was another major component. Oh, and by the way, there were snakes. And, you know, there were snakes. <laughs> and I don't like snakes. No, and they know no. I don't like snakes. So. Who does, man? Yeah. And yeah. they might as well have been cobras as far as I was yeah, concerned. I couldn't yeah. see them. We could right. just feel them. Yeah, oh, no. that's so creepy. Not- Ferris, you have a question for Jeff Tucker? Hey, Jeff, we mentioned your diverse background. You've been in gnarly situations before. Anything that even remotely compares to what you experienced on this show? Yeah, I mean, in firefighting, you get into some situations that you really have to control the panic. And the panic is a constant, both with claustrophobia and, and you know, but, but never to the level where for, I mean, we didn't find water for three days, for example. So never to that level... <laughs> Did, did I feel such mental and physical stress, let alone we didn't eat for five days. And, well, they had earthworms. I just wasn't hungry enough. But, <laughs> but you know, that type, of, <laughs> that type of thing starts to really, it's, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts. So the stress levels are going up way high. 
Um, you know, there comes a point where you can no longer produce endorphins, let alone urine. I mean, it, 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 it was bizarre from that standpoint. So it was a constant mental uh, toughness, I think, to just talk your way through it mentally. Yeah, we talk a lot about mental toughness here in the show. I think three days without water, obviously, there. You know, we talked about the effects of dehydration where sports medicine radio show, so we talked about how important it is to stay hydrated in mental performance. So talk about what it was like that first, because you guys had to work to get water. It wasn't right. easy. You found water, but it was like in a precarious, weird situation. You had to tie right. together some stuff and dip a bag down. Tell us what that first drink of water was like mentally as far as being able to help get you through the rest of the days. <laughs> so it, it was just like sitting down and having a porterhouse steak. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it was an incredible feeling to get it. But we, the, what the show didn't really transpire to show was it took six hours to get that water. Oh, wow. I mean, not just three days, but when we found it, it took a long time for us to garner the tools we needed to get to it because, yeah. you, you know, this this cave was, we were constantly falling. It had all these obstacles we yeah. were bumping into. Of course, at one point, Brandon fell, and, and I really thought Brandon was gone at that yeah. point. Yeah, he was sliding down a big, giant hill, but you didn't know where the bottom of the hill was. Right. <laughs> that had to be and, scary, man. Well, and, the, and what the show didn't put on the television before that is we, had, we were throwing rocks out of sonar. Yeah. And I had just thrown some rocks out. They never hit bottom. Oh, my goodness. So the mental thing was, was nuts. But, yeah, when we got those things like water... That was a massive victory. It was a game changer. Yeah. Uh, you were hydrated again. You felt a little better. The, the cramping wasn't as bad. So all the physical components that came from that reward was massive, yep. which helped you push through to take another step forward. Yeah. Ferris? Okay, Jeff. Everything you just said, that last answer, what in the world made you want to do this? Like, what, what That's a damn good question. This will be fun. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not really quite sure I've got a great answer for that. I, I, I kind of did it on a dare when I looked at it more and more. The challenge part of it, it sounds so cliche-ish, but, but it really was. It was going to be a challenge that, I mean, I'm 56 now. I thought, why not? You know, I'm not getting any younger, so let me just see if I can take this on. And I had some people who said, you know, hey, I don't really think you could do this. And that was all I needed for the fuel to <laughs> just jump in the lion's den. All right, you start the hallucinations. What in the, when you're mentally fatigued, I don't know what point that was, two, three, four days in, <laughs> what was it that you kept you going? What in your mind? Was it thinking of your family? Was it thinking about the next meal? What was it that allowed you to continue on going? What was your internal desire? I'll, I'll be really honest with you. I tried hard not to think about family, except if I did, because it would creep in. Yeah. I used that as a carrot, but but it, be, it created such emotion inside, yeah. and such turmoil. Because there was the, a point in the show we actually broke down and you started talking about Oh, something. dude, yeah. It I was, think your dad, I think. Yeah, and, and that was another thing that, you know, frankly, the producers knew. My father had passed away the week that I was oh, going in the cave. Oh, wow. Meaning the anniversary of. So oh, yeah. they said, you know, what would your dad think of this? Oh, well, Oh, thanks, guys. I appreciate yeah, that yeah, one. Yeah. But, but he was kind of constantly yeah. in my brain. But <laughs> what I really tried to do is I felt like the nemesis was the cave. So it's like, you're not going to conquer me. I'm going to conquer you. And that was the mental thing that, that kept me going forward, no matter how bad it hurt, no matter how many times we fell down. Because, I mean, we really literally left flesh on the walls of that cave. Wow. Um, you know, my shins will never recover. You think a box jump is bad? <laughs> Go walk in a cave for six days dark. Um and, and, you know, when you mentioned the thing about the, the hallucinatory state, I mean, literally that third day in, I'm just laying on my back looking upwards. I don't know what I'm looking at. I can't focus. Yeah. And I, it was the strangest thing, man. If you let your mind wander, some incredible things creeped in. And Porky Pig is standing there looking at me <laughs> oh, on his 65-square-inch television. I swear it was just as real as looking at you wow. right now. But the way I would make that go away is like, okay, well, I'm obviously my, – my brain's imprinting something here. Yeah. It's time to count from a thousand down by two. Wow! You know, so yeah. I would just change 
you know, what was going on left brain, right brain to kind of get rid of that stuff. But it happened yeah. to all of us. Yeah, we right. all saw things. Hey, we're talking to Jeff Tucker, who recently did a show called uh, Discovery Channel Darkness, where he and three competitors uh, started at three different points and had to transverse through a cave for six days, what it ended up taking them to try and find the outlet. Let's talk about uh, when you first found your first other competitor, because you guys didn't go in together. Right. So was that, did you feel like that gave you some hope when you found another human being trying to do the same thing you were doing? Was the camaraderie a good thing, or was it a... <laughs> the camaraderie was awesome. Yeah. Again, it's like finding that first sip of water. Yeah. It, the thing, that, too, that the show didn't really portray was we were all put into isolation for a component at the very beginning. So once I had gotten into the cave for a bit, they said, okay, now we're going to blindfold you, take you elsewhere, basically get you lost. Wow. And I was in isolation for a little over 24 hours, and so so was no Brandon. No food, no water again? Oh, yeah. We, yeah. yeah. We had a blanket and a backpack full of nothing. Wow. Uh, and, and so in that isolation, that's where it's kind of the seasoning. They're trying to find out how you're going to handle this mental darkness for a while. Yeah. Um, and absolutely no contact. And the crew never talked to us, ever. Yeah. And, and that was interesting. But, what, yeah, well, Brandon called out for help because he got stuck on a ledge. Yeah. But he really thought that there was an abyss in front of him. And so when I heard his voice, I started going toward it, asked him to count, got closer to him. Again, that took a while to get yeah. to him. But yeah. when I did... He was amazed. He goes, are you standing? I'm like, yeah, I'm standing. I, I can feel your feet up here above me. Well, and he felt like an absolute idiot. He's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, he goes, but I couldn't feel anything You don't me. know. Yeah. yeah. How would you yeah. know? Yeah. And so, yeah, we hooked up. But after that, it, it, even one of the Navy SEALs had said on the program, that is a game changer is finding somebody in there yeah. because now you've got a team and you're going to work right. together. Right, you're working as a team. Yeah. Right. Ferris? You know, on a lot of these survivalist things, if they can just find it, there's something around that they can use to make what they need. But is there anything in the cave that can help you make light? I mean, is there any way to do that? Well, the whole component is really an experiment. There was no light whatsoever to be used and or found. And, and, and so you're not going to be having any chance of creating a fire or hot meals or boiling water or any of that. It, you know, it, 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 it was one of those things, like we found crawfish, for example, in one area of the cave, but we couldn't eat them because we couldn't cook them. Uh, if you eat a raw crawfish, you run a real high risk of getting very, very sick. Oh, wow. So those types of things, and even with the earthworms, it's the same kind of mm. deal, which was one reason I passed on that wonderful gourmet meal. <laughs> but no, the, so, so it was about <laughs> really saying, I'm going to take on the fact that there will be sensory deprivation to a max level, and how will I deal with that? The, the hypothermia was another major, major part of this that doesn't shine through on the show. It was 48 yeah. degrees at night at the, in that cave, so... We were always huddling up for body warmth, and yet still, based on the medics that came in and checked us out to give us our base levels, you know, our, our body temperatures dropped two, three degrees on a regular basis each night. Hey, we're listening to Doc, Doc talking to, uh, I'm sorry, we're listening to Je uh, Doc and Josh talking to Jeff Tucker here. He just recently went through a show, Discovery Channel Darkness. And Jeff, the, we mentioned uh, you finding the first uh, competitor and how, how awesome that was. But the, the <laughs> third guy that you came across, so now you're finding your second guy that's also out there, right. he was hallucinating at the time yeah. and thought possibly you were there to harm him. Yeah, he did. He yeah. did. Jack Jack really... How did you talk him off the ledge? Well, we both kind of, you know, once we got past the, oh my God, what's happening here, you know, moment, we and we knew things had just changed. Uh, it was almost comedic at first, which kind of yeah. was insulting because we didn't know... Because he was like a former Green Beret. Former or, Green Beret, yeah. but he had been in the isolation for the longest period, almost oh, three days. wow. It took us about three hours to really calm him down, and he was concerned. I mean, two against one, do I have yeah. to do battle here? <laughs> yeah. you know, and, but we calmed him down, kind of basically went back to our old fire training, like, hey, you know, we're here to help, we're civil servants, 
we're here to help you. We got water. What do you got? So just started that conversation. And, and then the trust built over time. Yeah. And he's not a very trusting guy. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. But in that situation, you needed all three of y'all to yeah. help each other's help. Absolutely. Yeah. No doubt. Ferris? So, so how much do your eyes adjust? You know, it's a <laughs> dark room. There's a little bit of light somewhere. So you kind of adjust a little bit. Like when you say, oh, we talked him off a ledge, could you ever really see him or is it just talking? And no, and that's a figure of speech when I say talked him off a ledge. The, the real reality was we were constantly searching for a focal plane. If I were to put my hand in front of my face, it just it, it wasn't there. Uh, the guys that were using the state-of-the-art equipment in there had infrared filming capabilities. You can see our headlamp looks like it's lit up, but we couldn't see that spectrum of light. And, you know, there wasn't even so much as a pin light from the crew down there. Um, and there's reasons for that, too, because once you're in that dark environment so long, to introduce light creates more issues for you physically and mentally. So they went to great care to make sure that, you know, when they used night vision, they were using night vision. If they needed to blindfold us for some reason, they did so, like they'd come in and change batteries. They wanted to make sure we saw no light whatsoever over the entire six days. It's so nuts. when you reach the wow. end of the cave and you step out. Yeah. What's, give us that first moment. First of all, you didn't even recognize. You all thought it was hallucinating. You were hallucinating that that was the end of the cave. You saw light, so you had to make yeah. sure it was real. Well, and I think, I think you'll hear me say, no, that's light. Like daylight light? You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it was, we were so beat down at that point because we're five days in. And Brandon didn't want to believe it because of like false hope. Yeah. And I'm like, look, I've been watching that for about 100 meters right now. Yeah. I, it hasn't changed except to get larger in orifice. It, yeah. It's not hallucinated. This, this, it's not tracking left and right or up and down. It's not Porky Pig. It, it, it wasn't Porky Pig. <laughs> but when, when we saw it, uh, because we were in actually a pretty precarious area, a lot of jagged rocks at that place, well, we start hurling toward this light. And they literally told us, you guys have got to slow down or you're going to hurt yourself on yeah, your way out. Yeah. But, but no, when we found it and we recognized it, it, it was an extremely emotional experience because, one, we had... We had worked together as a group to get there. You know, it was a team, camaraderie effort. Um, but it was also a major accomplishment for all of us. We, we never knew for certain we could do what was going to happen. I mean, that's one thing, too, I'd tell you. I've heard all these things about reality shows and how it's all bunk and it's all set up and it's acting. Man, I, I, I wish it was acting. You know, I mean, yeah. it would have been a lot easier if it had been <laughs> acting. Uh, but when we saw it and got out there and smelled the air again and, and actually saw what I thought was the most beautiful green I've ever seen in my life. Wow. I, I mean, I physically picked up moss and breathed it in. Well, we hadn't heard a bird in six yeah. days, you know, and then to see all of that transpire in that moment, it was overwhelming. We got one minute left here, Jeff. And yeah. Give us a, so now that you've had some time to look back and give us a little perspective in the last minute, of the life lesson you think you learned from doing this. Oh gosh. Uh, you know, I think what's really timely in this, and Brandon and I talk about it every day. We talk every day since we've been out. Oh, that's awesome. And that was just the fact that, you know, color didn't come into any form of this from a standpoint of race, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm I'm an old redneck, and Brandon's a black guy from Louisiana. <laughs> but the fact that that's we were beautiful. able to come together and, and, and race was not ever an issue for us, I think was one of the most beautiful gifts out of all of it. Maybe we need to put all of America in a cave right now. Why not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It might do them some it good. It might do us some good, exactly. Well, hey, we've been talking to Jeff Tucker here on Docs and Jocks. And, uh, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. What a great show. If you haven't seen it, you go back and watch Discovery Channel Darkness and uh, being put in a cave and figuring out how to get themselves out in six days. Tariqa Pedersen did a great job. Who survived the challenge, by the way, and surpassed it. So I'm sure you talk about that now in your yeah. fitness lecturing. So pretty cool deal. But, uh, Jeff, I want to say thank you for coming on Docs and Jocks. We'll have to have you on again real soon when you do your next great challenge. My pleasure. All right. We'll be right back.
Titan-Simmons University and Lawrence Hall Chevrolet. Touchdown. Now back to more Docs and Jocks with Dr. Dan and Ferris. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks. This is Dr. Dan, your sports medicine physician with Texas Sports Spine. Great to have you with us. Hey, if you're just catching our show for the very first time, you can go listen to uh, any segment anywhere. Maybe you missed the interview we just did with Jeff Tucker, who was on a show called Discovery Channel Darkness, who's also a world-famous fitness instructor. If you want to go back and listen to that show or any other segment we have uh, done as far as guest interviews, you can do that by going to docsandjocks.com, or you can listen to us on iTunes. Our podcast is called Docs and Jocks, D-O-X-N-J-O-X, and listen to us anytime, anywhere on our iTunes app. Man, we'd love to have you be part of our show anyway, anywhere. Hey, uh, Ferris uh, Potter is the voice of Grand Canyon University, my longtime co-host. Ferris, I really enjoyed the uh, different interviews we have with different guests like Jeff Tucker. Some, for some reason, I love talking football, baseball, basketball, but the different ones like that one are always some of my favorites. How about you? Yeah, that was interesting, man. I, I've not seen that show. I, I hadn't heard of that show until you guys uh, mentioned that we were going to have him on. To me, what, what I got out of that was, yeah, physically, it's a demanding thing to be six days in a cave, but I think 90% of the world, it's the mental aspect that would that would take you down. And to, for those three guys that do that yeah. and work with each other, yeah. that, that mental aspect of just not being able to see anything. And, oh, man, I, 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 I listen to him say that. I don't know how he did that. I, yeah. I just don't get that. Yeah, because there's so many unknowns. Literally, his partner, and he kind of downplayed a little bit, but his partner who was sitting on a ledge, accidentally fell off the ledge or slipped forward on the ledge and just started sliding. So you had no idea if there was a bottom to this or not. I've actually, uh, I, I lived uh, for a while in uh, Bolivar, Missouri, which is a small town, Missouri. And there were a bunch of caves in Missouri that we used to go spelunking in. And I tell you what, I had a light with me and it is claustrophobic. It is scary. It is uh, nerve wracking because you can get so lost. And that's with a light. We used to take chalk with us and mark arrows so we would know how to get back after we went in. And it is, it is, it is actually pretty dangerous. I wouldn't recommend people like uh, what I did, amateurs just going in with really just a bunch of uh, friends and trying to figure out how to uh, look at caves. We saw some of the most amazing rooms, stalactites, you name it, man. Just cool, cool stuff. But I remember being in one situation where the walls were so tightly up against my chest, I couldn't take a deep breath. And so you get this weird claustrophobic sensation. If I get stuck in here... How am I getting out? How is anybody finding me? And then you start letting your anxiety roll a little bit. So what do you do then? You start hyperventilating. So you, you then start having even a harder time in that tight space. And you learn how to have to have a little mind control on how to relax yourself enough to be able to get through and transverse uh, something that you wouldn't have done before. I still think about that sometimes when I'm in a tough situation. I'm like, man, you got you to have that mind control. You have to have that ability to be able to control your breathing and and so I, I have a little taste of what Jeff did. I just can't imagine doing it in the dark like he did. Like you said, I think the mental aspect of it would be way tougher than the physical, even though he said that was tough too. So cool, cool interview. And the other thing is I think his background was amazing. We, we didn't really get into his background. He's been a, a CrossFit instructor and a fitness instructor, and he's world-renowned. He goes around lecturing to people who are great at strength and conditioning and performance coaches already, and this is a guy that's well, well known in that field. So if you ever want to check him out, Jeff Tucker, he's a pretty cool dude, but I, that, that's the type of guy who could uh, win this type of contest, and obviously he did. But, man, I love those interviews for sure. Hey, uh, the yeah, that, That's yeah, pretty amazing. I, I, like I said, I, I, I don't know. I mean, he's saying it's all, all real, all real, and I believe him, but I, I'm, I'm surprised nobody died, contestants or cameramen, because I've been in caves too, not nearly to that extent or even to yours, 
but I'm just shocked that nobody nobody died. Yeah, it's it's actually pretty easy to die in those things. Even with lights, we were uh, when I was spelunking in Missouri, we would come up on ledges that we would drop a stone in the ledge, and you wouldn't hear it hit. Like, not like it was a long ways away. I never heard it hit. So, the, I guarantee they had done some probably some reconnaissance on this cave to make sure there weren't like, complete drop offs. These guys were gonna fall off because I'm sure they had a safety officer with them. We probably had some form of you know uh, green light or something where they could see, but the contestants couldn't. But yeah, no, there's there's areas where you can definitely fall into a cave and uh, kill yourself. By the way, uh, when you splunking, and I've used that term a few ter- times, that's just a, the term for caving. People call it caving. The actual, uh, I don't know, the big fancy word, I guess, is spelunking. So Hawk thought of maybe some right. people didn't know who that know what that word was. But yeah, spelunking. And did you know that word, Ferris? Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm a smart guy. <laughs> yeah. I, don't know, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it's very – oh, hey, here's one thing I did one time that I, I'm surprised I didn't die doing in a cave in Missouri. So we go through this really, really tight spot, and we come up against – we come up to a river, an underground, very slow-rolling river. And it's probably like, fair I don't know, maybe four foot, five foot across this river, maybe a little – no, a little wider than that probably. And it, and it looked like it was about four foot deep. Well, it went around a bend, and we couldn't see where it went. And you didn't hear water, like, falling off an edge – so we, the next time we came back, we took inflatable rafts with us, and we tied them to us. And then when we got to where the river was, we inflated them, and we went down the river as far as we could possibly go and saw a room I don't know if anyone had ever seen was big oval room where the river flowed through it that maybe no person had ever been before. And eventually uh, we just went back up river and, and got to where we were and went back in that same area. But, yeah, why? looking back in time now, college students uh, floating down an underground river, uh, in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, uh, probably not the best idea I ever had in my world. Yeah, that's probably not. Yeah, you are probably very fortunate you didn't die. You know, one <laughs> thing I did, my brother and I did some uh, cavern diving yeah. in uh, in Florida, and that's pretty fun, but it can get a little freaky, too. It's more mental because they have yeah. permanent ropes, you know, so you you have lights and you can follow ropes. But that's a little, that's more freaky because you might have about maybe 15, 20, 25-foot vision with your light, you know. Yeah. But you're going in a cavern or something, and as long as you don't let your mind get away from you, you just follow the rope, you know, and yeah. hang on and trust it, um, you're okay. But that does get a little freaky, too. <laughs> yeah, a little freaky. Good way to put it. But I can imagine doing that with no light like Jeff Tucker did. So, Hey, I was talking about the sports medicine world. We're going to get back to some of the stories in the news right now. A big story in the news is the New Orleans Saints, they fired their team physicians. There's two of them, Derek Jones and Mitzi Suri, uh, both uh, males. They get fired, and the reason they're fired, Caleb or, or Ferris, is because they are misdiagnosed a top defensive back, Delvin Bros. They misdiagnosed his fibular fracture. So I'm going to talk about this step back for a couple things. We're going to talk a little business side of sports medicine, and we're also going to talk a little bit of the art of medicine. And when I say the art of medicine, Ferris, what I'm talking about is it's not always black and white. When you're on a field and you examine a player, you have suspicions of a fracture possibly, or you have a clinical acumen of possibly not having a fracture. So when someone walks up to me after a big hit and they're having rib pain and I feel their ribs and I don't feel an obvious fracture, that does not mean there isn't a fracture there. I don't have x-ray vision. As good as you want your doctors to be today, on the field, I don't have x-ray vision. And I've felt many, many fibulas because most ankle injuries involve that bone on the outer aspect of your leg called your fibula. And I felt many of those 
to try and feel for a fracture. And I can tell you, probably somewhere along my career, I might have missed a hairline fracture. I might—I can't think of it off the top of my head when I did it, but I guarantee, you know, you always try and err on the side of safety. But it is very difficult on the field of play when one of your star players is injured to be able to tell them definitively whether or not they have a fracture in their leg or they don't. The only way to really definitively be able to tell that is to do an x-ray. And even then, within the first 24 hours when you do an x-ray sometimes, it hasn't developed enough that you can even see it yet. You can have a hairline fracture that doesn't even show on your x-rays initially that later on, as time goes on, it develops and then you see it later. So that's how difficult it is. And that's why they call it the art of medicine. And it isn't a complete science. And it isn't 100% that when I examine somebody, I can tell you if there is a subtle fracture. Now, if there's a bone sticking out of a leg or it's angulated in such a way that it is an obvious fracture, those are the simple ones. But the hard ones are when they're not displaced, in other words, not angulated, they're not displaced, and, you know, the patient is wanting to get back out there. Remember, you, as a team physician, 90% of your players are dying to get back on the field, and they will tell you anything to get back on the field, or they won't tell you anything to get back on the field. They won't tell you how painful it is. So, anyway, that's the art of medicine. Ferris, as a, as a fan watching, do you, would you expect that every doctor on the sidelines would get a fracture right 100% of the time? What, what was, before we ha I had this conversation with you right now, what would have been your take? No, I think there's more to the story. I, I think probably they wanted to get rid of that person for whatever reason, and that was the reason to do it. Because even if you take, I mean, you, we've had doctors misdiagnosed because it's hard to do when they can, you know, put the guy in there and take MRIs and pictures and do every kind of thing. I mean, it's, yeah. It's not. It's 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 hard to do. It's an art, right? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I there's got to be more to the story. They probably just wanted to make a change, and they or they needed to hang it on somebody, so they did. Because yeah, to say, oh, you've got to be 100 percent correct all the time, or you're fired. Well, hold hold your team to that standard. A guy drops one pass and he's fired. Come on, man, that's ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. And you know, the other thing, I, I will tell you, one time I did miss an injury. I had a. Uh, in fact, I just saw him the other day. He's a. Uh, he still lives in, in in the town that we're doing the radio show from. And he was a player for Hardin-Simmons University, and he was a defensive back and a very good defensive back. And uh, he came to the sideline, and he sa I, sa I said, what's wrong? And the team uh, trainer I came over, and we were examining the guy together. And he, I said, always try to get a history first. I said, How did you, what happened to your knee? And he said, well, I was just running along and felt it buckle. So I examined his knee, and he's, he's a little tense. He's kind of, you know, uh, we call it guarding, where they, they're, they're a little tense. They don't want you messing with their knee. He never feels a pop. He never falls to the ground. His knee is not swollen. I ask him, does he think he can stand on it without pain? He says yes, so he tries to get up and he stands on the knee. I ask him if he can run forward and back. He says yes. I examine his knee and I feel like he maybe he's a little loose in his ACL in what we call Lotman's test, which is the most uh, common use test for a uh, ACL injury. And But I examine his other knee and it feels maybe a little tighter, but it's hard to tell. I just not an obvious... Uh, test that I said that I, I can say he has anything. I watch him for about 20 minutes. The game's going on. It's a pretty tight game. We need this kid to play. Coaches are coming over and asking him every two minutes if he can play. He's wanting to get back in. He takes his helmet. He runs. Shows me he can run up and down the sidelines. He goes. I said, Well, I, I think you're. Uh, if you feel like you can run up and down the sidelines, you want to give it a try. Let's give it a try. So the kid goes back out. He uh, does one play. A guy runs a deep pattern on him and he tries to cut. He comes off the sidelines. He goes, I feel like my knee's buckling again. I said, okay, come on now. I examined him again. Can't really give him a definitive diagnosis. Coaches coming over to ask him. At this point in time, usually when I let him go back out and try and play, they can't. 
I'll hold him. The kid stays on the sideline. The kid gets an MRI. He has a complete rupture of his anterior crucial ligament. Complete rupture. Hmm. He never had the, the obvious signs. The, the classic story is, I was cutting, I felt a pop, I fell to the ground, my knee swelled up real big. That's kind of the common, you hear those phrases, terms, you know it's an ACL injury because typically you bleed inside your knee when you tear your big anterior crucial ligament. None of those things happen. The kid actually ran up and down the sidelines for me, uh, you know, went back in the game and just felt like huh. his knee was kind of sloppy. So there you go. I mean, I, I missed that diagnosis. I let a kid with an ACL rupture go back into a game, briefly as it was. Luckily, he uh, had symptoms and he had to come back out. But, yeah, I missed it, and uh, it wasn't a classic story. His exam was not just obvious. Remember, you can have patients uh, that will kind of guard. So, in other words, if you think their knee's loose, they kind of kick their hamstrings in because their, their knee hurts. And so yeah. it lets you do the exam very well, and you can miss it. So that's why we call it medicine art. So I'm not 100%, I don't know the story behind why the New Orleans Saints fired their team physicians for a missed fibular fracture. I'm just saying every team physician that has done it long enough knows what that feels like not to know 100% what the injury it is, what the injury is, and you call it a bruise and it ends up being a fracture, it ends up costing your job. Like you said, there's probably more to the story, but every team physician has had this happen to them. Yeah, it might be a culmination. It might be a lack of communication internally. It might have been a new guy coming in. They wanted to bring their own guy. You never know. I mean, look at the Washington Nationals. We talked about them in the first segment. They've had a ton of injuries this year. They just changed their entire staff last year, you yeah, know? I mean, right. it just, just, I mean, and they've got a great staff now. They probably had a pretty good staff before, but it probably just they weren't getting the communication. They didn't feel like the training was correct. Grand Canyon just made a change in their strength and performance, and Things look great. It's just a different vision, a different way of doing things. So I, I bet it had more to do with that than just, oh, you screwed up one time, you're out, you know. Yeah, and then you know what? The New Orleans Saints, uh, their staff and their medical issues haven't been uh, not in the news uh, over the last few years as well. In 2011, I remember Surrey and Jones actually performed, the, the, those two team doctors performed the surgery on head coach Sean Payton who had had a terrible, remember he had that terrible sideline injury, he ended up having a hip fracture. Mm -hmm. So he, they are actually the ones who did that. And then there was a, the Saints also, they had medical issues. Uh, supposedly there was an alleged uh, missing a Vicodin from the team drug uh, locker where uh, Coach Vitt, and I remember he's the one of uh, fame for talking about taking players out, supposedly he had to spend some time. <laughs> right, and, right. And Coach Payton uh, using Vicodin uh, when it wasn't medically prescribed. So that staff has not been without some... Uh, issues to say the least so maybe it just was time to make a change what's interesting is they're in a 10 year they've been the team physicians for 10 years and they are part of a corporate partners the group that is called Oshner Health Systems which those two doctors are part of they're corporate partners who now have the naming rights for the Saints training facility remember most team physicians in the bigger programs in the NFL pay to be the team physicians and have the naming rights so because they are the team physicians for the New Orleans Saints, obviously that's a huge marketing tool they can use talking to regular weekend yeah. players like me and you. So it's a very strange medical business we're in as well. But anyway, very odd that the New Orleans Saints have now asked their team physicians to no longer be part of the team. They're looking for somebody. So uh, interesting story there with the New Orleans Saints. Hey, you're listening to uh, Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. Uh, we will be right back. When we come back, we're going to be interviewing Eddie Lackey, former All-Big 12 linebacker, talking about what he's doing these days after uh, playing for the Baylor Bears. Be right back with more Docs and Jocks.
listening to Docs and Jocks, brought to you in part by Sylvan Learning Center, Dr. Melton Chiropractic, and Texas Sports Hall of Fame. Touchdown. Now back to more Docs and Jocks with Dr. Dan and Ferris. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks. This is Dr. Dan, your longtime sports medicine physician with Texas Sports Spine, coming to you from inside Docs and Jocks Radio Studio. Hey, if you've just catch our show for the very first time, want to catch uh, maybe a previous interview uh, like the one we did with Jeff Tucker, like the one we have upcoming with Eddie Lackey, all Big 12 Baylor linebacker. You can do that by going to our podcast on iTunes, Docs and Jocks, D-O-X-N-J-O-X, and there you can listen to our show anytime, anywhere, or catch any previous interview you might have missed. Hey, we'd love to have you be part of the show anyway. Joined each week with my co-host, Ferris Potter. Ferris, the longtime voice of Grand Canyon University. Hey, Ferris, we have online Eddie Lackey, former all-Big 12 linebacker for Baylor University, where he was involved in the uh, national championship game against Alabama. Great to have Eddie on online. Eddie, thanks for being on Docs and Jocks. Absolutely. Excited to be on. Thank you for having me. Hey, speaking of exciting, this is the time of year, man. This is when you get your juices flowing, probably, man. The season's just getting ready to kick off. Do you still uh, miss putting the pads on? It's just been a few, a couple of years that you've played yourself, but you're still missing those uh, pads on, strapping it up and going and playing a little football? Oh yeah, absolutely. This time of year, it, it doesn't matter. I, I, I start to get the tingles again, start to get the goosebumps all over again, and 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 get excited about the season. I think it's just uh, in my blood. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, it's it's definitely an exciting time of the year, and uh, just driving by different high schools and, and and everything, and seeing guys out, you know, training and practicing and everything. It's Getting me excited, so Absolutely. definitely uh, looking forward to the season. And Eddie, you're one of the greatest linebackers to ever play uh, for Baylor University, all Big 12, obviously. You know, talk to us a little bit about You do an Eddie Lackey uh, linebacking academy. Tell us a little bit about what it takes, what you look for in young linebackers to say, hey, this kid has what it takes to be a great linebacker. What Give us some of those both physical and mental toughness skills that a linebacker has to have. For sure. So, you know, I with the game the way it is today, it's it's adapting to such a, a fast game. And one of the biggest things I look for look for in a linebacker is somebody that you know has the potential to play fast, and not just physically, but mentally. And and to play at um, at a high level, you you've got to be able to be decisive. You've got to be tenacious at the point of attack. You've got to be able to. Uh, make the tackle in the open field. You, there, there's a there's a lot that goes into playing linebacker. I, uh, I know I might catch some slack for saying this, but I consider it the, the toughest position on the field. Um, and I and I think quarterbacks are a, a close second. Yeah, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but I I, I think linebackers that um, you know the toughest position on the field. And 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 the reason I say that is the quarterback at least knows what the play is about to be. And yeah, as a true. defensive guy playing linebackers, it, you have to react and preparing to, to react and respond uh, quickly and tenaciously. Um, it really sets it apart because you're, you're running the show. Um, most, most schemes are set up to where, you know, the linebacker runs the show and you, you've got to be, you've got to be a lion. And, and that's really what it comes down to. And, um, you know, just just being very uh, uh, just willing to learn. Uh, so that's that's something uh, just the the heart of it all. Um, you know, that I look for or that a linebacker should you know should kind of embody. Right. So you know, you played with a couple of the greatest quarterbacks to ever uh, be at Baylor. You know, Bryce Petty, 
obviously spent some time with the RG3 as well. So did you ever have this conversation with them that they weren't the greatest athlete on the field? They knew what the play was and you didn't. And actually, you were the greatest athlete on the field. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you better believe it. Oh, yeah. And they probably have a contrast of a opinion. Um, but, hey, I, I'm going to hold firm on that because uh, they – with all the respect, I'm not too sure they they know uh, <laughs> what actually goes into it. <laughs> hey, you, they always talk about a linebacker having to have great vision and be in the gap or be you know read the play so quick. Is that something you can teach, or is that something you're just innately born with that you can see things happening very quickly and be in the right place or the right position to make the right play? Yeah, yeah, it's there's a combination, but I I think it's you know it has a lot more to do with your your preparation and it's teachable. 100%. And, and it's one of those things. Um, you know, what, what I do in my academy, uh, is a film study. Uh, film is just imperative and to be shown what to look for on film will help prepare you and be ready for those moments, um, to react, to respond to, you know, that guard that's pulling. Uh, and then, you know, you 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 got to be able to synchronize your footwork with those reactions that you have. And so, what I get into detail with with my academy, it, you know, I, I really I really try to harp on the smallest of details. But I I do think it is a, a coachable um, aspect of the, of the game to to learn how to react and, and sniff out plays because you, you just got to be proactive and and being proactive. Uh, in the film room and physically, but when when you're watching tape, you know not just watching what the what the scheme is, but watching the the guy's tendencies. And and a lot of guys just don't understand the the true detail in which you study an opponent. So it's uh, it it really uh, just getting down to the details and being proactive. You, you can definitely pre- be prepared. So. You're listening to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. We're interviewing former All-Big 12 Baylor University linebacker Eddie Lackey. Ferris, you have a question? Hey, Eddie, when, when you have these kids coming into your academy, what are some of the attributes you look for um, that you look at a kid and go, man, I, I can teach this kid and make him into an even better linebacker? You know, I, I think it all starts with the attitude first. Um, I, I, I look to make sure that they have the right attitude. I start there um, because it, it, it takes – a certain type of commitment uh, to be a, a great linebacker. Um, so before even looking at their physical attributes, I, I, I look at the, you know, the, the mental side of it. And then, you know, as far as the physical stuff, um, something that I can, you know, that, that, that really tells me that they are going to succeed at the linebacker position physically is uh, their lower body strength, their the explosiveness, the 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 triple extension. You know, different. There's different drills that we do to kind of um, to to break that down. But um, overall, as a linebacker, you have to be explosive from the hips, and that's that that comes into play with everything. You've got to be able to be physical with your hands. A lot of guys, you know, they'll swipe their hands all over the place and do a lot of wasted movement and. Um, you know, it's it's really about narrowing down, uh, trying to anchor down those wasted movements and and just fine tune uh, the the proper technique. And a lot of those, a lot of the guys, it, it's 
you know, it's that lower body strength and, and explosiveness that I'm that I'm really looking for because it, it, it's the center of of everything uh, when you're playing linebacker. Hey, give us your top three drills you uh, use uh, for linebackers trying to increase that lower extremity explosiveness. Okay. Give us uh, either some weight training or some drills you do that loves that. How do you increase that in a young man? Absolutely. Uh, so one of the most popular ones is uh, your, your power cleans. Um, you're you're going to be able to get triple extension with that. And as you push your weight and go through the progression of that exercise, um, and it's it's imperative to understand the, the, the drill um, properly, and I know this is uh, this is weight room oriented, but th- that's something that I think is imperative to work on your explosiveness, and that's something you can right. do on the turf. Um, and then there's there's the standing broad jump, uh, definitely a, a fantastic drill to uh, to work on that triple extension and, and just narrow narrow down where you know the discrepancies are and, and working on getting that stronger. Um, and then also. Um, you know, I, I do like to. There's there's a couple little drills that I like to do, uh, but they're you know a little more fine detailed on the field. Yeah. Uh, but a hang snatch, uh, you know, is is very comparable to the power snatch. But uh, I I do I would say that those are the three that I I usually target for triple extension. Hey, Eddie, uh, you've uh, worked with some great athletes, and now you're working with some young athletes like uh, Terrell Franklin, the uh, starting Abilene High linebacker. When you see a young man coming in like that, I mean, he's obviously a great physical specimen, and is it just trying to take a guy like that who already kind of has the skill set and trying to fine-tune him to make him uh, into a great one? Is that what you look for? Absolutely, yes. And and he's got the right attitude. You know, I, I mentioned earlier, it, it's it's got a lot to do with the attitude, and he has he definitely has his head on straight and he's very motivated he a lot of guys are motivated i know that's a easy word to throw out there but he he's very uh just detail oriented and i love when i get to the point with my guys in the academy when you know they're they're sitting there shaking their head after a rep and i don't even have to tell them what they did wrong um and we're talking fine detail stuff and that's exactly what he does you know we'll, we'll get done and i don't even have to say it he's just shaking his head already and he's just you know uh, he, he's fired up to, to basically get back and, and just redeem himself and continue to get better. And, and, and he, he's just a, he's a fantastic athlete. He, he's fast. He's strong. He's, he, he plays physical. And so, you know, right now we're just working on uh, just being detail oriented, especially in the box. So um, that's, that's something that we are continuing to harp and, and, and hitting the film study. You know, it's probably uh, very hard to simulate some of the things you have to do at linebacker. I mean, how do you simulate a uh, athletic, you know, 280 to 320-pound pulling guard coming through the hole, and you've got to figure out how to shed that guy? Do a lot of linebackers, young linebackers, come back to you after they played their first few games and say, okay, let's do that lesson again. Let's figure it out how to do the right way this time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, that. Besides having the actual, you know, the actual 270 pound specimen there, it is hard. Um, but you do use the arm shields and 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 um, teach them the movements and the the techniques that it takes with your your arms. The guys, um, the the biggest issue that I see when guys aren't are or they're struggling 
with taking on a block, especially with a guy that's substantially bigger than them, is they don't use their hands. And I always tell them, um, especially the guys that get their arms out real wide and, and don't have a good base, that, you know, I, I don't consider it holding at this point. You know, I, I don't consider it holding if, you, if you're going to give the, the O-lineman your chest. And if they're holding on there, which they a lot of them will, I'm not going to say every single one of them, but just about. <laughs> um, I just I tell them, you know, that's that's your own fault. You should be, you know, your yourself in the, you know, in the in your own head for that because that's you know something that we've got to get narrowed down, which is their arms. So um, yeah, I think that's that's probably the biggest thing. But um, just simulating it as much as you know possible. That's that's what I, I do from the coaching perspective and use the arm shield and, and make sure that guys are taking on the, on the block. And you better believe I'm not going to, not going to be too soft with some linebackers. They got to be tough. <laughs> yeah. Pierce. Hey, hey, Eddie, in just a couple minutes, um, I'm just kind of wondering a lot of great athletes, you know, they're, they're, they're just natural ability takes them to a very high level. Where was it for you when your natural ability Kind of took you as high as it could, and you're like, "Oh man, I got to start really working here to to keep up with these guys." Would you remember that time in your life? Yeah, I would say it was uh, it was in high school. It was my my junior year. I I really um, I understood that I I I did have that lower body strength and and the explosiveness. And when comparing it to the other guys that you know I was around at my high school. Um, I could tell that there there was a difference, and um, so I, I worked on that. I, I worked on not just weight room exercises, but I worked specifically on uh, explosive uh, linebacker-specific drills, and and those were things that that really separated me from from the pack. I, I feel like so. Um, I, I would say that it, it was my lower body strength and, and the explosiveness that came with it. Right. Hey, we've been talking to Eddie Lackey here on Docs and Jocks, former All-Big 12 linebacker with Baylor University. Hey, Eddie, if someone's interested in doing your Eddie, La- Eddie Lackey Linebacker Academy, how can they contact you to get involved with that? Yes, so you can contact uh, the front office at, at D1 Sports Training in, uh, in Abilene there, and we can get you all squared away, and, and uh, usually we can schedule whatever the, the time is that uh, is available at that, that time. So, okay. Um, yeah. All right. Hey, we've been talking to Eddie Lackey. Eddie, thanks so much for coming on air. We'll have you back on real soon. All righty. Thank you so much for having me. All right. We'll be back with more Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show after this short commercial break. Texas Neurosurgery, Abilene Tech, and Sports Clips. Touchdown. Now back to more Docs and Jocks with Dr. Dan and Ferris. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks. Remember, catch our iTunes podcast, Docs and Jocks, D-O-X and J-O-X. Listen to our show anytime, anywhere. Joined each week by my co-host, Ferris Potter. Hey, Ferris, we're very excited to have on our special guest, good friend of Docs and Jocks, been on several times, Professor Raymond Beal. He's like a seven-time black belt at seven different martial arts. He's like a martial arts Hall of Famer. He is 
the biggest bad mother in all of our area, Ferris. So I am in studio with Raymond. So Ferris, don't pop off and get uh, Professor Beal all upset at me here for some remark like you make sometimes. So be real careful. He's Ferris is coming to you from sunny Phoenix, Arizona. So we'll be taking this real easy. But we have in studio Professor Beal. Thank you so much for being on. Certainly. Anytime. This is the time of the year, man. You know, people are talking MMA right now. They're talking your world. Man, you got Conor McGregor, the world's one of the world's greatest uh, MMA fighters. And yeah. you have Floyd Mayweather, possibly the best boxer in the world right now at his, cl- his, his class and his weight. One of the, we'll go down as one of the greatest boxers of all time, no matter which way this goes. But you got those two guys getting ready to square off. You're one of the few people on the planet who have competed both in Muay Thai, which involves, you know, punching, also some kicking and stuff, but also re- relatively similar to boxing, not exactly, obviously. And then you're also one of the guys who's performed and trained people who are high level in MMA. And uh, so you're one with a real unique perspective on this. So first of all, before we, I'm not going to ask the question yet, who you're going to pick and those kind of things, but give when you first heard about the fight, when you have one of the world's most famous MMA fighters fighting one of the world's greatest boxers. Give us your first thought when you first heard it the first time. I thought, well, both these guys are really good at talking trash. That was my first inclination. Yeah, who do you hate the least is usually how I picked who people are going for yeah. in this fight. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, like you said, uh, Mayweather is one of the most technical boxers out there. He's really, really good, really technical. Um, and most people don't know think about him as a, a knockout artist, per se, but of the 49 fights he've had, he's had, he's won 26 by knockout. Yeah. So he's so. not. So everybody talks about McGregor going to have to throw the haymaker and knock him out to win it. Floyd Mayweather can very well throw a haymaker and also knock out Conor McGregor, right? It's oh, yeah. very possible. Yeah, yeah. The the one thing about the, this matchup, both of them are counter strikers, so both of them are going to try to stay out of each other's range or or whatever. So somebody's going to have to do something a little different than what they're normally used to doing. And of course, McGregor is—he's—he's he's fighting in a, in a uh, boxing ring with boxing ring rules. So, it's going to be a different—it's uh, a different cat altogether. From you tell me this—I didn't realize Conor McGregor. I've always kind of thought of him as—I've uh, seen multiple fights, but you're like I said—he likes to stand up. That's one of the things he does. He's not necessarily take you to the mat, choke you out type fighter. Though he can do that, obviously, as an MMA fighter, you have to. Everybody can do that to an extent. But he's really a guy that doesn't mind standing up and boxing you in the MMA ring. Yeah, that's that's typically what he does. Uh, he out of his twenty four fights, he's had twenty one wins, eighteen by knockout, two by decision, and one by submission, and yeah. then of course three losses. Right. So he doesn't mind having to stand toe to toe with Floyd Mayweather, even though it is in the boxing world. But he's comfortable that way anyway. Yeah. Uh, he he he's comfortable standing, but like I say, on a uh, when it's just a different cat altogether when you're uh, difference between uh, boxing and MMA. Yeah, so. right. Ferris, you have a question for Professor Beal? Yeah, Professor Beal. So uh, one thing we've seen, you know, Mayweather hasn't had a knockout in a number of years, but he's just hard to hit. Like, I mean, McGregor likes to stand up, but he's usually fighting against guys who aren't as near as slippery as Mayweather. Do you think he has a chance to really connect with Mayweather? Because it seems like when Floyd doesn't want to get hit, he doesn't get hit. Yeah, Floyd is, like I say, he's, he's an unbelievable uh, counter-striker, and he he doesn't get hit. That's that's why he's had the longevity and and uh, the success he's had in the in the ring. Uh, McGregor's going to have to work at it. And uh, I was talking to some guys earlier, and they were uh, we were discussing you know the the differences. And in in one of the major differences is 
in boxing, you, you can kind of shrug your shoulder up and block with your shoulder and, and do all that. In an MMA match, if you do that, you're giving up your back to the guy. So there's a lot of stuff that uh, McGregor hasn't really trained for as long as, you know, I mean, it's basically muscle memory for uh, Mayweather. And Mayweather's such a smart fighter, he's not going to give up, he's not going to let his ego dictate what happens in, in the ring. And I don't know that McGregor, uh, McGregor's a pretty smart, right, smart fighter as well, but I don't think mm. he has the, he's nearly as, you know, can control his ego as much as Mayweather. Hey, we're talking to a nationally renowned uh, jiu-jitsu black belt uh, professor, Raymond Beal. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned real briefly, that both of these guys can be defensive fighters. And in your jiu-jitsu classes, you are big on teaching a defensive posture. Like, how do you protect yourself? How do you keep yourself out of a fight? How do you get out of it if you once you're in it? But both these guys tend to use that tactic as part of their overall strategy. Yeah, what they do is uh, they will allow you to attack them, and they try to stay just out of your range. And what they do is they catch you trying to get them and then making just a little bit of a mistake, overreaching or whatever, and then they counter that counter your strike. And both of them are very good at it. But uh, like I say, Mayweather has a lot more, a, 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 just a lot more experience at it than uh, McGregor. Hey, we just heard recently that they're going to uh, use a lighter glove. Does that make a difference for you to give an advantage? Everybody's talking about how it may be an advantage for McGregor, who can throw the haymaker now and be a little bit more effective. And, you're, and you've done this with Muay Thai. You use smaller gloves. Do you think it makes a difference? It'll make a little bit of a difference as far as hand speed, but uh, a, lot of your, a lot of your catch weight fights and, and professional boxing matches, you're allowed to go from an 8-ounce glove to a 10-ounce glove to whatever. So uh, as far as just the kinetic energy and the force, uh, the eight ounce glove, you know, you're you're gonna get hit a lot harder. But uh, yeah. it, you know, once again, you got to hit them to make it make it count <laughs> whether whether you got an eight ounce glove or an eighteen ounce glove. Yeah, Ferris, your question. Yeah, a lot of people when they said about they're going to the eight ounce glove, thought, oh, now now McGregor might knock him out. But it seems to me like all those jabs that I would imagine that Mayweather is going to land, all those jabs and and counter punches that are just short little shots, they're going to have a lot more force as well. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And Mayweather has a good jab, so. Um, and but like I say, that you know, everybody's worried. Kind of has has a has their own ideas, but uh, about how it's going to go or whatever. But uh, as far as boxing, boxing is just a completely different, completely different sport. There's nothing the same. Uh, even the boxing you study as a MMA guy is different, because like I said, you can block with the shoulders. He's going to be wearing shoes. the 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 pad on the mat is going to be different. I mean, there's just a lot of a lot of things that he's you know he's going to be doing that that uh, he doesn't have to deal with in a MMA match. Uh, it's like I said, as far as shoes and just everything else. I remember you talking uh, when you were uh, teaching classes like. Whatever you have, whatever you're good at, I'm just trying to. I'm going to take you to the world where you feel uncomfortable. So, like, if you fight fight a boxer, if they come up to you like the boxer, you're taking them to the mat and doing jujitsu on them. If they're, you know, a guy that goes to the mat, you're going to stand them up and we tie fight them. Really, now what you've said, what your strategy has always been, McGregor now loses that. Now he has entered a world where he is one on one with the best in the world, oh, yeah. trying to play his game, which is boxing. Yeah, and like I said, there's no, none better than than Floyd Mayweather as a straight-up pugilist. He's just, uh, he's just incredible. Hey, you know, it has, I was thinking about this, but one of the things you teach about in uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and 
one of uh, the pupils that have, that have trained under guys like you and Silvio Baring, some of your your uh, mentors, uh, Anderson Silva. You're very humble. You teach humility in it. You don't have an ego. You don't put down your opponent. You're you're always trying to look another man eye to eye and understand them, but you're trying to beat them, but you're very humble in it. Is it hard for you to watch Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor, who are the antithesis of that thought pattern? Is it, is it difficult to watch those guys do their thing? Are, you, are they really on the inside very similar, but they just have to put a show on on the outside? I, I don't know. Give me your take. Well, I, uh, you know, the, both of these guys know how to market themselves real well. Yeah. <laughs> and it, this this is a marketing thing. Like I said, it, like I started my statement, oh, well, both these guys talk a lot of trash or getting good at it. But, you know, if if it was just two guys that, oh, yeah, well, you know, he's a great guy and I love him. And, oh, yeah, Mayweather says, oh, yeah, well, Conor McGregor's a great guy and I love him, but we're going to go and we're going to kind of do our best to see who can win. Nobody would <laughs> nobody would watch. Right. You have You yeah. have to have – you have to have something behind what you're saying. And so they're, you know, they're doing what they need to do to put on a good show, and hopefully it is a good show. Hey, we're talking to Professor Raymond Beal, a, a nationally renowned trainer in um, several different MMA-style fighting, but also in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You know, uh, if, you were flo- if you were counseling, and you've, you've worked with a lot of MMA fighters, if you were counseling Conor McGregor and you're saying, okay, you're getting ready to take on the greatest boxer in the world, what would you have him training in? What, give me your training strategy. Well, there, he would need to start immediately just doing straight-up boxing. But there, there is, you know, it takes thousands of hours right. to get your yes. muscles conditioned yeah. to, like I was saying earlier, kind of dip and block with your shoulder. With, so, you know, your, sho- your shoulder absorbs a punch instead of, you know, your head. And, and like I said, you can't do that in MMA. And he, uh, Mayweather has had thousands upon thousands of hours doing just that. Not only that, he's had thousands upon thousands of hours in shoes. Right. Think about that. You know, uh, you know, even out here working out on Do you have to wear shoes in boxing? Do you have to wear them? Yeah. Okay. yeah that's, right. I didn't know if that was the, a rule or not. Yeah. One of the rules. Yeah. That, but, uh, you know, if you, you put on a different pair of uh, shoes to go train with and they bite a little different. You put your foot down, you kind of trip over, you know. Yeah. It's, it's just a completely, like I say, it's they're completely different animals, boxing and MMA. So let's flip it. Let's just for fun flip it. So McGregor now convinces somehow Floyd Mayweather, well, you're going into a cage match with me in MMA. Does Floyd Mayweather stand a chance against an MMA fighter who can now do anything, you know, jiu-jitsu, judo, karate, you name it. Does, would, a, would a true boxer who doesn't have those skills, would he stand a chance? Well, like I never count anybody out because – like yeah. I said, depending on the ego you have and how you treat your opponent, you know, you may do something not real smart and give him an opportunity. But that being said, the, the, I think there's been two or three, maybe four boxers that have actually tried to step in the ring. One of them was against uh, Hoist Gracie in, oh, in, wow. that, in that match. Oh, that's you know, scary. the guy had one glove on and one glove off, which I, I, <laughs> I don't really know what. But Hoist beat him fairly handily. And I believe Hoyce actually fought another guy who was an older, he was older when this happened. He was a boxer. And, and uh, basically the dad, I, I, I believe that Hoyce's dad told him, hey, this is an older man. Do not go out there and disrespect him. So they, he basically kind of held him on the ground and made him, made him tap out. <laughs> uh, the other one was uh, Tooney and Randy Couture. And Tooney came in, and Randy, you know, kind of stayed back a little bit. And when uh, he had an, Randy had an opportunity, he shot, took him down, and just got on top and 
pounded him. Oh, wow. So it never so, has ended well for a boxer going into the MMA world. So no. But Floyd you, Mayweather would not withstand uh, Conor McGregor, most likely. No, yeah. probably not. But like I say, you can't ever count, you know, the high, as, as high a caliber athlete as he is, you couldn't count him out. Yeah. Hey, Ferris, I'm going to say this for Raymond because he would never say it. Professor Beal's too humble. I think if Floyd Mayweather tried to come in and take out uh, <laughs> Professor Beal, he would tap him out in about, uh, I think about take him about a minute to get him to the mat, and then he'd just choke out uh, Mayweather. That's, I really, truly believe that. I've seen Raymond, uh, Professor Beal, tap out five, you know, 5A state wrestling champions in just a matter of seconds. So I'm not just saying that from no experience, but a true MMA Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy that has that skill set that the other guy doesn't, I don't think the other guy stands a chance. That's just me personally. You want to comment on that, or you want me to just hang that out there? <laughs> it's true. I'm no, just I, it's true. Yeah, I think it'd be really tough, right? I mean, he'd have to try to jab and keep the guy away, but once you got him on the ground, as soon as they got their hands on you, don't yeah. have that skill set. But hey, I, I'm wondering about this. I mean, Professor Beal. Yes, sir. You know, I know we'll get to predictions at the end, but do you, I mean, do you think this fight goes the distance? Because man, the last two boxing matches I saw that went the distance, the wrong guy got the decision. So. You think this goes the distance, or you think this is a this is a knockout? I I don't know that it'll I don't know that it will go the distance, but I don't know it'll go the distance because somebody will get knocked out. Uh, you know, it may be you know both these guys are tough, but it may be one of those things where you kind of have to you know one guy gets tired to the point he does something silly and gets hurt or gets knocked out. But uh, mm. like I was t- like I was explaining earlier, you know. In MMA, if you'll watch them, uh, all the athletes kind of have their shoulders hunched up and their back is always tight and their shoulders are always tight. In boxing, their back is loose and their shoulders are loose. And the reason is you don't have to worry about kicks. You don't have to worry about fending off a shot. You don't have to worry about uh, you know, a lot of stuff. You don't have to worry about giving the guy your back because he can't, he can't jump on you and choke you. So you're able to stay relaxed. Um, McGregor, if he doesn't change the way he boxes, he's going to have a hard time keeping his hands up once it gets past three or four rounds. Mm. And uh, just here in our last 40 seconds, do you think there's any chance that Conor McGregor just jumps on Floyd Mayweather's back and chokes him out? No. <laughs> he loses too much of the purse? <laughs> yeah. No. It would be great TV, though. Yeah, great no. direct pay-per-view, whatever TV right there. So Yeah. Well, you've just been talking to, well, we've been talking to Professor Raymond Beal, one of the uh, greatest fighters I've ever seen personally, uh, one of the greatest teachers of uh, several different martial arts, Muay Thai, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Oshu, Daru, the list goes on. But if you ever want to find out more about his classes and become part of it or contact him, you can do that at Essential Combative Arts. It's uh, taught out of D1 Abilene's uh, facility every uh, evening. You just give us a call up at D1 Abilene. We'll just set up with uh, Professor Raymond Beal, who's a great, great teacher of all those different wonderful sports. So, Professor Beal, thank you so much for being on. Thank you. If you have to give thank us a prediction, i got to give you this last one. One word, who's going to win it? I'm saying Mayweather. Mayweather. There you go, Ferris. You heard it here first on Docs and Jocks. Hey, we'll be right back with more Docs and Jocks after this short commercial break. Got a girl from the south side. Got braids in her First time I seen her walk by. And I about fell by my chair. Had to get her number. You're listening to Docs and Jocks. Brought to you in part by Buffalo Wild Wings. First Financial Bank and MDI Abilene. Touchdown. Now back to more Docs and Jocks with Dr. Dan and Ferris. 
Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks. This is Dr. Dan coming from inside Docs and Jocks Radio Studio. Great to have you with us today. Just catching the show for the first time, and maybe you missed some of the great interviews, like the one we just had with Professor Raymond Beal, MMA, uh, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Black Belt, uh, Martial Arts Hall of Fame. You can go back and listen to that interview by going to our iTunes app, Docs and Jocks, D-O-X-N. J-O-X, or you can listen to us at DocsJocks.com anytime, anywhere. Hey, great to have you with us today. Ferris Potter is the voice of Grand Canyon University. He is my co-host. Uh, we're just going to finish up, Ferris, with some of the uh, great uh, sports medicine news, the big sports medicine news stories right now. And there's one of the ones that's kind of sad is uh, we always lose some of the greats every year uh, in the athletic world. And this time we lost Coach Frank Broyles. And uh, if you don't know who Coach Broyles is, he was the head coach at Arkansas University, where or University of Arkansas, where he was the head coach, he had a record of 149, 62, and 6. He also was the uh, national champion uh, in 1964 with the uh, University of Arkansas, where he led to the national championship. So uh, do you remember him growing up, Ferris? I remember the Texas-Arkansas great battles uh, when I was a kid, and Frank Borles was definitely part of that. Him and Darrell Royal are probably the two most well-known coaches of all time in that generation. And yeah, I remember the name. I don't remember a lot about him, but I, I definitely remember the name. Yeah, so I had a I remember Jerry Moore, Coach Jerry Moore, who was a back to back to back three time repeat, one double A national football champion with Appalachian State, and he's been on Docs and Jocks before. And I knew Coach Moore would know uh, Coach Broyles, so we called and got some of his statements. And Coach Moore said when he was a young coach at SMU, he said uh, Coach Broyles sat at his table and uh, just gave him about a fifteen twenty minute lecture about not a lecture but just a conversation about how. If I was a young coach again, these are the things I would try and do. And Coach Moore said he really just soaked up everything. He said, uh, always love your staff, whoever is on your staff. Love them like they're your family because you're going to be around them more than your family. He said, uh, Coach Broyles talked a lot about how to hire your staff, how to go about hiring your staff, what do you look for in coaches that you want to be around. He said, also know how to deal with other coaches moving on because when you hire staff, especially a young staff, then the next thing you know they're moving on. And he said uh, that Coach Broyles, Frank Broyles, was a real gentleman, and he also was a great competitor at the same time. And he gave this uh, for instance. He said that when he was a player at Baylor University, that's where Coach Jerry Moore was played his uh, collegiate career at, Frank Broyles uh, was uh, coach at Arkansas, and the very first game Jerry Moore ever played in his college career was against the University of Arkansas. They ended up winning the game 7 to nothing. And he said Coach Broyles came up to him after the game and said, a great game, young man, patted him on the back. And he said he was a complete gentleman about it. And he said you don't see that type of civility and that type of a gentleman necessarily in today's sport like you did then. He said it didn't take anything away from Frank Broyles being a competitor, but it did just show that he was a real gentleman. I thought that was a very classy act. Yeah, there's some great ones, man. We're, we're at that uh, time where they're, they're passing. It's uh, good memories, though. It touched a lot of guys' lives. And, yeah, I do remember the name. I remember those epic battles. I remember he was a good one. Yeah, absolutely. Coach Jimmy Keeling, who's also a Hall of Fame, both high school uh, coach here in the state of Texas and also a National Hall of Fame coach, uh, 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 Hall of Fame coach at the collegiate level, he also said he worked with Coach uh, Broyles, Frank Broyles, who passed away just recently at age 92, and he said uh, Coach Royal and Broyles, uh, he had both great respect for both of them. He said that Broyles uh, was in a small select group of coaches that wherever he went, Coach Keeling tried to hear him speak. He said it was Coach Broyles, Coach Darrell Royal at University of Texas, and Coach Bear Bryant, obviously, for University of Alabama. He said one thing that Broyles taught him that he uh, emulated was when Broyles first went to University of Arkansas and was hired on, 
the first visit he made was the first Methodist church there in uh, Arkansas, in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And he said, I want to give 10% of my income to my church. He said, Coach Keeling said that was the first thing he decided to do because that was his priority was to make sure that he gave God 10% of his income and would remember to always put God first in everything he did because he was going to be asking his kids to do the same thing. I think that's one of the coolest things I've ever heard from a head coach. Also, he said that he had a coach, uh, Keeling said he had a player when he was the high school coach in San Angelo Central, Coach Keeling was, a guy named Greg Thomas. And uh, this was after Coach Broyles' coaching career, but he was the athletic director at Arkansas. And Arkansas had never had an African-American player as quarterback. And so he said that Greg Thomas, still to this day, considers Coach Broyles one of his greatest mentors and advocates to being the first African-American quarterback at the University of Arkansas where he played for Coach Hatfield. And he always uh, talks of uh, Coach Broyles with great love and admiration. And so I thought that was just a, a great talk about how, you know, Coach Broyles didn't let race be an issue. He put God first. He was considered a gentleman by the people he knew who knew him. And he called him, Coach Keeling called him a, subtle, a southern gentleman, one of my favorites. So I think when your life comes to an end, if those are some of the accolades that people can say about you, I think Coach Frank Broyles did a great job, not only as a coach, but also as a person here on the planet Earth. Do you think it's just a different era with coaching now? Or do you think the money has something to do with it? I mean, you weren't making a ton of money back then when he was doing all that stuff. Or do you think it's just a upbringing or a combination? Because you're right. I mean, it's, it's very different now. I mean, there's so much, so much now about just, you know, winning, 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 and that type of stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know, Ferris, and, and it's the choices coaches make, but I think you could be a great football coach and also be a man of great character. It may be harder than it used to be because winning is held in such high revere, but it wasn't held in low revere back in the 50s and 60s when Coach Broyles was coaching as well. I, yeah. think, I think that high character coaches bring with them the aspects that make them great coaches as well as great people. I think they go together because when we talk to Gene Stallings, Jerry Moore, Coach Jimmy Keeling, talking about guys like Coach Broyles, they all have some characteristics that are in common in great coaches, and that is they typically have they they have a faith, they have God, they put that God first to a man. Each one of us, each one of them, have told us that. They typically love the people around them and they treat people the way that they would want to be treated, which is a rarity in coaching. You don't always see that. They typically mm -hmm. always put their players' relationships as one of the greatest achievements in their career they almost always to a person talk about that before they talk about the number of wins they had and they always are big on family whether it's their family or whether it's their coaching family talking about their staff and I think those are some of the common characteristics I've taken out of the interviews we've done with some of the great coaches we've talked to like Raymond Berry, Gene Stallings, uh, Coach Jimmy Keeling, Jesse Burleson the list goes on. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, yeah, winning was always important too, but there's just so much, so much money involved and so much specialization and everything. I wonder how much that has to do with it. But I think you're right. I mean, it definitely, it definitely can be done. And there are a lot of good coaches, young coaches that are doing it the right way still. Right, right. But I think we can uh, learn a lot from these coaches who are passing, like uh, Frank Broyles and stuff. So anyway, our, our prayers and thoughts go out to the family of Frank Broyles. It's as he dies at age 92. Some great accolades there by some great coaches, Coach Jerry Moore and Coach Jimmy Keelan. I want to thank them for giving us uh, their insight into that great coach. Hey, Ferris, we were talking earlier in the show, we were talking about Bryce Harper and his injury that occurred after a three-hour rain delay where he slipped on the bag after a three-hour rain delay, and he hyperextended his knee. He's now going to be out four to six weeks. Luckily, he didn't tear any big ligaments in the knee, so uh, we were just missing for a while, not for a long time. 
But here's even a sadder story that I found about a guy who slipped on a rain delay. Recently, Dustin Fowler of the Yankees, it was yeah. after a rain delay, he uh, slipped and he ruptured his patellar, patellar tendon while making his big league debut. He, the sad part of the story, Ferris, he never got his first at bat. So here you right. are, you're in the big leagues, you're glad to be in the big leagues. What happens? He tears his, uh, he tears his patellar tendon, he's out. I think that's even maybe the more sad story that Bryce Harper, who everybody knows about, he's a great star. But, man, how, would you, how sad would that be if you finally make the big leagues, you have a rain delay, you slip on a field, you tear your patellar tendon, and you never get your first at bat. It's almost like the show uh, Field of Dreams where the player got to got a bat. Moonlight Graham got to play in one game but never got at bat in life, and the whole show is based on him getting at bat in the uh, second, second life but up in heaven. So really, really sad story for Dustin Fowler. Pretty sad, huh? Yeah, I remember watching that. Um, it was very reminiscent of when a um, different kind of thing when uh, Mariano Rivera was shagging flies out there and and hurt himself yeah. because you have the guy just go down in the heat by the warning track wall and then you have everybody Girardi, everybody running out there. And, uh, yeah, he was going to be he was going to factor in to the uh, Yankees this year, but now he's in Oakland. A. He got traded in that Sunny Gray deal, so he's not ever going to play for the Yankees. It doesn't look like. Yeah, no, so he'll never get a bat for the New York Yankees. I wonder if he'll make a movie about him someday like they did uh, Moonlight Graham. By the way, <laughs> the character in the show that's in the Field of Dreams, Archibald Graham, is a real-life player. He played. Now, obviously, the Field of Dreams story didn't happen. That's not a real story. But the player that what? they <laughs> – Yeah. Uh, it still makes me tear. That's, by the way, I'm going to ask you here in a second a question about a movie. Which movie can you not flip by and watch it? But Archibald Graham, his nickname was Moonlight, Archibald Graham had one at bat or one game for the New York Giants, never got an at bat. And he is listed in the baseball encyclopedia. I looked it up after the show because I heard that that was a true story. Did you know he was a real character, a real player? I did, and you know what? It, we look at it as a sad thing, but, dude, if I could have stepped foot on one major league field for one game and not gotten a bat, I would do it. Yeah. I would trade places with a guy in a heartbeat. Yeah, exactly, because we're one step below that. Whatever that rung is below that, we're right below I that. I wasn't even close to that. I couldn't even sniff that, what he did in the major league. So you're watching TV, and you, yeah. what, what sports film, if you're flipping by and you see it on, no matter where you're at, no matter how busy your life is, you stay on that channel and watch that show? Uh, Caddyshack. Oh, yeah, that's a <laughs> no. great one. Golf, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Caddyshack. Dude, I can't I can't flip away from Hoosiers um, or uh, Field of Dreams. Those two for sure. Yeah, absolutely. you got to wait till the end of Field of Dreams. Dad, you want to have a catch. You want to have a catch. That's one of the great lines of all time. Yeah. What yeah. about you? Uh, I would have said Field of Dreams for sure. The Natural, I've never stopped. I mean, I've never flipped by The Natural, and I've never, yeah. flipped, and I've never flipped by Rudy because I wouldn't see the last scene. I love Rudy. Yeah, I've never been a Rudy guy. I, I get it, but I've never quite been a Rudy guy. I don't know why. Is that weird? I'm like the only guy that's not a Rudy guy. Oh, I love it. I just, this is the end, you know, watching the whole thing, his teammates carrying him off at the end. It's such a – we love the underdog story in America where a guy isn't supposed to make it. You, you know, because the underdog story is 99.9% of us that played sports, right? We didn't never make it to the level that we wanted to make it to. So the fact that Rudy, who's an undersized football player, can make his dream come true and play for the great – Notre Dame and get on the field in his last game ever. Just such a great story. I mean, it's, it's, we love the underdog for sure. Yeah, the last thing you want to do, though, is hear from guys who were actually on that team and say, well, it didn't really happen that way. So you just want to, you just want to watch the movie and think that was exactly how it happened because <laughs> it is kind of a cool movie. Yeah, the other one I, I have a hard time uh, turning past, 
I don't see it on TV very much anymore. It used to be when we were kids, we would uh, they'd play reruns of it more often. Was uh, Brian's song with the story of uh, oh. Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo, the Chicago Bears, and Brian Piccolo gets cancer, and his, his star player friend uh, Gail Sayers, you know, stands by until the end of the movie. Uh, Brian Piccolo was his fullback for the Chicago Bears, so that's one of the movies too. I have a hard time flipping by. Oh, I, I would never stay on that one. It's too sad. I would, I would, I would, I would definitely slip by that because I'm like, oh, brother, I can't, I can't, well, I can't put myself emotionally through this. That's a great movie, though. Great movie, great movie. Hey, speaking of uh, under overcoming and an underdog that's been come back onto the field, a great story here. Former uh, University Texas, I'm sorry, Texas Tech University uh, pitcher and now big league pitcher Chad Bettis, who has had testicular cancer and then was deemed uh, testicular cancer free. Now, he has now returned for the Colorado Rockies uh, after he had a recurrence, and he now went through his first big league game. He pitched seven innings uh, of shutout baseball. Uh, man, congratulations to Chad Bettis, who made his comeback. I hope uh, he has a great season and continues to have a long career as well as a long life. But I always love to see guys like Chad Bettis, who has testicular cancer, overcome and uh, be able to come back and play. Did you get to watch any of his debut fairs? I didn't, but I saw it, and it's, it's, it's obviously great for him. That's the number one story. He's going to be okay. But the number two story is they could use him down the stretch, and he might be he could play in October if things keep going this way. So that's a great comeback for, for better. Oh, yeah, the Colorado, Colorado Rockies having a good season again, so they seem like they're coming back to prominence. And Man, and uh, also a guy from Texas Tech. Lubbock's not far from where we're doing this show here in uh, Abilene, Texas, so we're big Texas Tech fans, obviously. Hey, what we're really fair, uh, big fans of is our show uh, listeners who listen to Docs and Jocks, our sports medicine radio show, uh, every week. Man, we want to say thank you to all you guys. I want to say thanks for not only listening to our show, Docs and Jocks, but also making our podcast, Docs and Jocks, D-O-X-N-J-O-X, one of the fastest growing podcasts on iTunes. Man, I want to say thank you for that as well. Hey, remember, you can always listen to our show anytime, anywhere. On, uh, if you'll just go to docsandjocks.com, D-O-X-N-J-O-X.com, and there you can find our show uh, and any previous guests that you might have missed. Uh, the guests we had this week, if you missed any of these, you want to go back and listen to them. We had Jeff Tucker on. He's from the Discovery Channel show Darkness, and he talked about how he uses athletic abilities as a fitness uh, coordinator and instructor to go through a cave over six days with two other guys, get from one end to the other in complete and utter darkness. No water, no food, no light. They got all the way through it. And then, uh, then we just finished a, a, a great interview with Raymond Beal, uh, Raymond is a, a jiu-jitsu instructor. He was talking about Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor. Also had on uh, Eddie Lackey, a former All-Big 12 linebacker. He's doing a linebacker academy here at uh, D1 Abilene. So if you also, if you ever want to find a place to exercise, man, we'd love to have you be a play, be part of us here at D1 Abilene as well uh, and, uh, and find a place that you want to exercise. Because the best type of exercise, Ferris, is which type of exercise? The one you'll do. The one you'll do, man. Find out what it is you love to do, what you like to do, and uh, get involved. If that's at D1 Abilene, great. If it's at a workout facility close to you, if it's working out of your gym using uh, P90X or using videos, man, whatever you'll do, get out and exercise. The benefits of exercise far outweigh any type of medicine you could possibly take to try and improve your health otherwise. Man, great to have you be part of our show today. From myself, Dr. Dan, as well as uh, Ferris Potter, the voice of Grand Canyon University, we want to say thank you for being part of Docs and Jocks. Until next week, so long.